Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, uh, we're about to get to our show, but first I wanted to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Linda. Uh, Linda is a great way to learn just about anything. It's already February. If you've made some New Year's resolutions to pick up some new skills, this is the time to invest in yourself. Uh, They've got over 3,000 courses, all taught by experts. Millions of people around the world take them. They've got everything from basic stuff like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop to, I was just checking out uh, the audio software Logic, which I'd love to learn. JavaScript for web designers would definitely help me out. Um, Anyway, whether you want to set new financial goals, find a work and life balance, find a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, whatever you're trying to do in 2015, lynda.com has something for you. So I want you to go to lynda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash long form and sign up for a 10-day free trial. This is for our listeners. You'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, even if you're on your phone, wherever. Watch the videos, learn something new. Go ahead. I challenge you. Thank you, lynda.com. Here we are with the show. Hey, uh, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Longform's Max Linsky and the atavists Evan Ratliff. Good morning, guys. Hey, Good guys. afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, a bit of a sad day around our offices. Um, a really good friend uh, to all the people, many of our guests and the hosts of this show, uh, David Carr, uh, passed yesterday. He was a huge voice in, in what we think about this thing that we're doing and uh also just a all-around great talker yeah there's a so many uh tributes to him right now and that happens anytime someone dies but uh from even knowing him a little bit i mean it's all true like the generosity the influence that he had influence he had over me and what we do and you know just like profound effect everything from introducing us to people to just like the way he was generous with his time or like open to what was, you know, being interested in something that he didn't need to be interested in, you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel like all three of us, uh, didn't spend a ton of time with him, but he had this huge impact on all of us. And one of those things was that he, he, you wanted to do well in his eyes. Like, you know, you wanted to impress him. And really early on, I, uh, called dibs on the David Carr interview for the podcast. And then it took me a long time to get up the nerve to actually ask him to do it. And, uh, I finally did recently. And, uh, we were actually, uh, scheduled to do it last night. And then he, he pushed it cause he had to interview Edward Snowden. And uh, I wish I got the chance to do that. Well, it's a, it's a loss for, uh, the whole community of journalism and readers and obviously to his family. And, uh, uh, for as for this week's episode, I think at least we have a kind of appropriate guest. We have someone from the Times. David loved Absolutely. the Times more than anyone, and he loved a great reporter. 
and storyteller. So, Aaron, yes. who do you have on? And uh, 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 someone who could ask tough questions. I was just watching some clips of him. Like, uh, there's no one I've ever seen who's like um, more like willing to go straight for the like uncomfortable question uh, <laughs> than he was. So, um, my guest is also someone who asks a lot of uh, uncomfortable questions. I'm sorry, this episode uh, starting on kind of like a low swell of energy, which is actually this is uh, one of my favorite episodes. One of the one of the best interviews I've ever I've ever had uh, the chance to speak to someone. Um, my guess is Rukmini Kalamaki, um, and it's not maybe a name that our entire audience would know, but you've definitely read her work this year. Um, yeah. I don't think anyone's been on uh, the front page of the New York Times more. Um, she's only been working at the Times for ten months, I believe, um, but she was brought in to be what's basically their ISIS correspondent. Not just ISIS, I guess, um, sort of that entire world of terror groups uh, correspondent. And she wrote the story about James Foley and the other captives' um, captivity in Syria. She wrote the story about the Kouachi brothers in Paris. That story was unbelievable. That story was unbelievable. Both those stories A couple days after. Yeah. She, like, flew to Paris immediately and, and did that story, you know, not not really having contacts in Paris, um, you know, by herself more, not by herself, other people have, I shouldn't say that, but um, these are like really big stories. Like these are, these are the stories that are like framed on people's, you know, wall kind of stories. And she's done many of them in less than a year. Um, and she has a really interesting story of how she got there. She has not, she's not like a, a journalism superstar who's, who's always been winning prizes. She was on a local desk in Illinois not that many years ago. Um, she was born in Romania and left. Uh, her, her story is really fascinating. Um, it's so fascinating, actually, that so I, uh, I, I came in at five to talk to her. And I had a dinner plan at 7.30, and uh, the clock crossed 7.30, and I had to cancel that dinner uh, versus via text message uh, because we were still going. So uh, we talked for over three hours. A new record. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> quality and quantity. And we're actually going to put this out as a two-part episode. So this is part one. Um, we'll have part two out soon. Like, we're trying to get out as soon as we can get it edited. We're working rapidly here. Um, please check them both out. They are both interesting and quite different and about different parts of what she does. Do we have any sponsors this week? We do. We do. I don't know if you guys have uh, been itching to send a newsletter. But if you do, I suggest you do it with Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It is done by the good people at MailChimp who continue to support this show, and we thank them for it. Now here's Aaron with Rukmini. Welcome, Rukmini Kalamaki. Thank you for having me. I'm surprised that this interview is happening because I woke up this morning and you had a, uh, a cover story on the front of the New York Times today uh, about ISIS uh, reporting that the sort of the lone female hostage had died in a Jordanian airstrike. Yes, we. I I came to the office yesterday expecting to have you know sort of a quiet Friday and was was planning actually to do my expenses, and um, I can't remember exactly when. I think it was halfway through the morning. A colleague sent me a tweet from an Islamic State linked account uh, where they were showing pictures of this flattened building. And naming Kayla Mueller, who's uh, who's this hostage, whose name and whose story I've known 
since at least um, the middle of last year. And we've closely guarded her name and her details at the at the request of her family, who had been told by ISIS that if they named her in any way, uh, if they went to the press in any way, that they would kill her. And all of us were were really praying and hoping that she might be the exception. You know, it seemed when they started killing James Foley and the others and the men, it just seemed like it was this inevitable wave. Yeah. But there was always a question about the woman. You know, would they go so far as to kill a woman? And this was an ending that I had not anticipated. We don't know if it's true that she died in a Jordanian airstrike, but it, in a way, avoids answering this question. Is ISIS willing to kill a Western woman um, by at least claiming that she's been killed in this airstrike? I want to talk about several parts of that story. So how does this kind of... You said a, a friend told you that this was happening on sort of ISIS Twitter channels, these reports. How do you gauge whether something is newsworthy like that. I mean, I guess I'm wondering, when do you know to pull the trigger and say, okay, this has to go in the New York Times now, as opposed to we were holding it, when the source of the information is Twitter? So let me answer it in in two ways. First of all, the Islamic State and also um, the various branches of al-Qaeda have a very specific way of communicating with the outside world. Mm-hmm. They all have these publishing arms. Uh, in the case of ISIS, there's several of them, but perhaps the most important is called Al-Furqan. They also have an official radio station and an official English language magazine. And so these messages are usually generated by the publishing arm, and then it gets released on Twitter by what what we call ISIS-linked accounts. And those accounts are, I can't even keep track of them because they're constantly being taken down. Um, So in my case, what I've done is I've been able to nurture a couple of sources that are very close to the Islamic State. I don't... I wouldn't go so far as to call them ISIS members because I don't I don't actually know who they are, but they clearly have access to uh, this material immediately before it's even published on social media. And these people will usually send me a message and say, "Hey, look at this! You know, this thing is out there," and you can then tell. Uh, first of all, it has the branding, you know, of this uh, of this arm of yeah. uh, of ISIS, whether it's Al Khan, etc. You can also tell from just the the, the look of it. Um, and certainly for the hostage videos, I'm sure you saw that James Foley's execution and Stephen Sotloff's execution and Peter Kasich's, they were all mostly the same scenario. You know, the hostage is, is there in an orange jumpsuit. They're kneeling in a desert scape, yeah. uh, which various uh, experts have identified as, as um, the hills around Raqqa uh, and, and in that general area. And there's this man that we've now started dubbing uh, and calling Jihadi John, who's always the same executioner. Uh, and, you know, and it has it has a pattern. And once you start seeing, it, it's almost like the DNA of, of these of these videos. When, you, when you've seen them enough times, it's very jarring when you see something that is not by them. You know, and so when the ones that are not by them come across your screen, you're like, uh, you know, like you you just hold off. So it's almost the kind of visual anthropology that that we've been we've been forced to do. We then have a checks and balances. The site intelligence group run out of out of Washington has for years now become sort of a clearinghouse of these jihadi messages. They track everything. And they have people that are that are embedded with um, with these jihadi groups that are at least very much in contact with them. And um, when they, you know, I, I I will usually get these messages an hour or so before site puts it out. But when site puts it out and site says this is an ISIS linked account or this is by the publishing arm of um, of, of ISIS, I then feel 
at that point, I usually feel comfortable enough, you know, to, to go with it. Then the big question becomes, how much of this do we put out? And in the case of the New York Times, we put out not even, I think, 1%, you know, of what, of what, the, what these people are publishing, because there's a very big debate about what the balance is between news and propaganda. Yeah. Every one of these execution videos is propaganda for these groups. At the same time, you cannot avoid that, you know, the death of a young woman who's now been held for 17 months or so, um, who happens to be American and from Arizona, that that isn't news um, in, our, in our country. And additionally, you can't deny that if this is on ISIS Twitter accounts, this is clearly going to be in the Jordanian media. Exactly. This is a story that is not going to stay in the bag because the New York Times specifically makes that choice. Does that make it hard for you to really pull the brakes at all, knowing that there are other people who have this access to the same material? I think we make our decision pretty independently. There's been... um, there's been several ISIS videos that have come across my desk. For instance, the ones that involve John Cantley, uh, the hostage who's allegedly been turned and is now es- essentially shooting propaganda videos for for ISIS. We did the first one. You know, we didn't. I think we then did maybe a mention of the second one, but we're just we're just not going to put out every single one of them. I, I often will sometimes get uh, get emails, you know, from editors when they'll see that some ISIS video is being you know reported on by the Daily Beast. You know, oh, should we have that? Should we not have that? Yeah. For instance, there was was one where we had kind of an internal discussion about it was a video that showed a young kid um, uh, like he looked like he was 11 or 12 standing with a man and the man essentially shows him how to be how to kill how to execute uh, a hostage it's a local hostage it's not one of the one of the foreigners and um I mean, I had been seeing a buildup of these children-related videos, um, pictures of training camps that show children, pictures showing little kids decapitating their dolls. And there had been sort of a constant wave of it. So when the actual video of a child um, or, or a prepubescent you know, kid um, killing somebody finally, finally emerged, to me it wasn't news. I think I actually erred in, in that. You know, I mean, the, there is something very different between, you know, showing a training camp right. and showing an actual child carrying out uh, an, an act of atrocity. But anyway, so we have we have these discussions all the time, and we're trying to be, you know, sensitive to, to the fact that this is exactly what they want. Every single time we write about one of these executions, it's what they want. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean one one of the things that interests me about this is... What you're dealing with when you're dealing with this publicity apparatus, I, I think, is really like an advanced public relations machine. It's something that's generally associated more with a government than with a terrorist group. And prior to covering ISIS, and I think you continue to cover al-Qaeda, yeah. so is having this kind of direct sort of professional level exchange with people? Is this new or is this is this a, a tactic that's been uh, adapted from, from previous groups? It's new for me. I mean, I, um, for me, the change um, began to occur uh, when I was living in Africa. I was in, in Senegal for almost eight years. And I, I was there, coincidentally, at a time that, that paralleled the arc of the rise of al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, which at one point became probably the most lucrative branch of al-Qaeda because of their kidnapping um, for ransom business. And 
from t- December 2006 when I arrived there until I would say um, 2012, which is when they took over half of Northern Mali. It was a very frustrating beat. You know, I I felt like I was just regurgitating the same information. I would go to the same diplomats, um, the same analysts who said the exact same thing. After a while, I started wondering if they actually had any information. You know, it just felt like we were in this echo chamber of, you know, saying the same facts about, about this group. And everything changed for me, I would say, in the middle of 2012 when al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, in a way that very much prefaced what ISIS has now done in Raqqa and in Syria and Iraq, established an Islamic uh, state. Not a caliphate, but like an Islamic area of control in, in, in this very large territory that they controlled. It was actually the size of Afghanistan when we, when we looked at the square footage of it. Uh, and they began acting like a government. They set up a Sharia court, a tribunal. They had police officers that went around um, ticketing people for for various perceived offenses. They issued um, a speed limit in the city of Timbuktu. Timbuktu was covered with sand. Um, And so it's actually quite hard to drive fast, you know, in um, in Timbuktu. But they issued a speed limit anyway. And... um, and among the things they did is they uh, they appointed a spokesperson um, for their local affiliate, which was called Ansardine. And I, at this point in time, somehow, I can't even remember how, I got the phone number of one of their commanders, a guy called Umar Uldhamaha. And at first, I was, I was one of probably two dozen or more reporters that would call him. Um, and I, I don't want to flatter myself, but I think I somehow struck almost almost a kind of friendship with him. It, it sounds very weird to say that. So it started with, um, first I would call him once a week, then I'd call him twice a week, then three times a week. And, you know, in the course of things, you know, you would call him and he would he would call me back and I'd say, I'm so sorry, Umar Ultamaha, you know, I've got to take a call from my mom. The next time he would call and he'd say, Rukmini, how's your mom? Um, and uh, anyway, so this 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 sort of wall between the terrorist and the journalist (laughs) began to sort of erode and and not to make light of it but on a human level you connect with another human being you know I got to know personal things about him he started to become a very good source I mean he would he would um, there was never one moment in time when I can that I can point to where he actively lied to me and in fact there were many things he said to me that I did not believe for one of them a very big one was he told me that they had surface to air missiles and he said it was the SA7A and SA7B um, surface to air missile these are the missiles you can shoot down a commercial exactly. air exactly exactly this was this was a very big deal in Mali at this point in time because um, the Gaddafi regi- regime had just imploded um, Gaddafi's arsenal of some of the most sophisticated weapons was essentially, you know, lying open for anybody to steal. And there was a lot of chatter and a lot of worry that Al-Qaeda's branch in um, in Northern Africa would get their hands on it. And, and African airports are a complete joke in terms of security. So it, it would, it would, it would, it's not out of the ordinary or out of the realm of possibility that they could have shot down, you know, a Western. It's like infiltrating a parking lot, yeah. basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and um, so... I didn't report it because, I mean, how, how can I report something so significant on the word of, you know, an, an admitted terrorist? And fast forward to um, January of 2013, the French uh, launch a massive intervention um, when they realized that this, you know, w- what we saw in Syria was essentially happening in Mali and was getting worse. Uh, and they pushed back the Islamists uh, out of northern Mali and reporters, you know, flooded in. And so I was able to get to the city of Timbuktu just a few days after it was liberated. 
And, um, you know, in the course of my reporting, I started asking people, so, okay, where, where did you see them? Where, where, what, what buildings did they use? And in the course of doing that, I ended up going to the various structures that they had occupied. And in these p- buildings, I found thousands of pages of documents that they left behind because, they, they, you know, they left kind of in a hurry. Right. <laughs> and among the first things that I found was a stack of manuals for the SA-7A and SA-7B surface-to-air missile, detailed instructions on how how to, you know, how to put in the various parts, um, how to protect it from the elements, and how to shoot down a plane. And um, I'll never forget, I, I, I hired I hired a translator um, in Timbuktu who wasn't very good. He was just like this local kid and uh, he came over to you know to my hotel and we were sitting there you know by you know by this weak light um, trying to reach um, to, trying to read this manual and the, um, the 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 first page was written in Arabic it had a picture of the missile which I didn't recognize and he's translating for me and I see SA7 right um, and he's translating for me surface to air which he said which in French he said was une bombe sur la terre et dans l'air which which literally translates as a bomb on the ground and in the air Anchor. and I'm like <laughs> you know and I'm like what do you a bomb on the ground and in the air a bomb in the ground and I'm like oh sur- surface to air yeah yeah surface to air and I'm like oh my god it's a surface to air missile you know right. and then and then he opened it it's SA7A SA7B and anyway so it was for me, it was the turning of a new leaf when I realized that, you know, we seem to think that because they're terrorists and they do the worst thing possible, you know, yeah. which is killing civilians, that therefore they must also be liars. And certainly some of them are, and certainly they exaggerate, and certainly they, they say things that are untrue sometimes. But it's been my experience that if you manage to touch the leadership or people that are in the circumference of the leadership, and if you create sort of a system for talking to them, that they can be reliable sources. Well, it seems like almost that assuming that groups are liars, it's sort of a comforting assumption right. because it suggests that everything is bluster and that, that it's purely propaganda. It's not strategy. But in that same dump of stuff that you found in Timbuktu, yes. and, and this is the reporting you did for the AP, and for this the was AP. in 2013, yes. which you won a um, Pulitzer for. No, no, I was a finalist. <laughs> you were, which you I, finalized. I, I wish I'd won the Pulitzer for. <laughs> <laughs> like on this show, you won the Pulitzer, <laughs> uh, which you were nominated for a Pulitzer on. Yeah. Um, there was a trove of documents that basically outlined an al-Qaeda strategy for the establishment of a state. In, exactly. Um, in, and the stuff in it isn't like... Let's kidnap people and torture them. It's basically like people love trash collection. If you can nail <laughs> trash collection, you've got them. And totally. it's yeah. it's quite mundane. Yeah. And it suggests very much an organized strategy um, for creating a state. Absolutely. And what it seems to me like is as in reporting this stuff, uh, journalists are sort of on the vanguard of in some ways treating these groups like a state. I mean, once you sort of have the knowledge, okay, they want to create a state, they want to be treated like a state right. by journalists, right. where is, the, like, is there a validation in, tr- like, treating them that way? And how do you, how do you sort of measure, like, mm-hmm. you know, if um, Magreb says, I want to be known as President Magreb from now on <laughs> in the Times, right. like, who who makes that call? Because the U.S. government is going to be quite late on yeah. recognizing them as a state. Right. But at some point, certain people will. Right, right. So, 
Linguistically, um, we're kind of in a bind with ISIS because they've they've very cleverly chosen the the name for themselves of the Islamic State, right? Yeah. And so at the at the New York Times, our style right now is on first resten- a reference we qualified. So we say the militants of the of the so called Islamic State, right? Or Islamic State extremists, said blah right. blah blah. But you can't do that on every like second third. The AP is actually doing that where on yeah. second third fourth oh, fifth really? reference they still say Islamic State militants. It's hard to get in like a headline yeah. too, you know. It's <laughs> Like, exactly. If you're going to cut space, that's exactly. the like, so-called goes exactly. so easily. Yeah, exactly. And um, so, I mean, you get in trouble on the second or third reference. But, you know, we're, we're right now using like a host of linguistic tools to try to signal to readers that we obviously don't think that this is a real state. Right. However, the reporting on the state-like functions of ISIS and of al-Qaeda which up until quite recently were, I think, ignored by most journalists. And I remember when I, when I was at the AP and I wanted to do, I actually pitched a story about, you know, their their state-like uh, behavior in Mali. There was a lot of resistance and a lot of, you know, worry on the part of my editors that we were somehow falling for their propaganda. Yeah. Uh, it's my opinion that, that we, need to, we need to just kind of grapple with this. Um, um, among the most interesting documents that I found in Timbuktu and that I've really not been able to exploit yet because they're in a way they're so old, but it was the records of the tribunal. And this is the Sharia court where when I was reporting this on the phone in 2012, the only thing that we would report on is when they passed one of the so-called hudud, um, uh, issued one of the hudud punishments. Hudud is the big punishments, um, the stoning to death of an adulterous couple, the amputation of hands, uh, the execution of, of an alleged murderer, you know, because these things are so horrific for us um, mm-hmm. and, and so visceral. In fact, the vast majority, and I have, you know, hundreds of pages of these of these tribunal notes and uh, uh, the the vast majority of the cases are very petty <laughs> social disputes. And I suddenly realized that what was happening is Mali has a broken justice system. It always has. Um, yeah. It's it's West Africa, it, one of the poorest regions in the world. Magistrates, uh, court officials are accused of being corrupt. Uh, and people believe that, you know, that, that, that they can't have their day in court. So why even go? Um, and I came across land disputes, you know, people that had had, you know, like th- this guy comes in and says, um, since 1971, I was given this parcel by my father. In 1975, this itinerant, you know, herdsman came and, and created and, and built a hut on the on the edges of my property. The next year, he started planting sorghum plants on one lane of, of my property. The second year, <laughs> he added another another line. And, you know, he describes how this thing just encroached on him and how, you know, this is his land and he's got a deed and the guy keeps on saying but but no but I also have rights to it and they would come and the impression that I got is that on non-sexual things <laughs> and, and things things that you know things outside of the realm of what you know of, of these sharia punishments that we find quite quite gross that on these simple things that they felt that they were getting more justice um, in this particular al-Qaeda court. And that's that's a very scary thing to, to ponder. Yeah. What, what al-Qaeda and what ISIS does is they burrow in in places that are broken, you know, in places where there's a vacuum. And sadly, there's some things that they do well. Sure. Sadly. These things sort of echo other stories yeah. you've heard before. So for me, when you say that, it, it echoes – I remember the um, – Misha Glennie wrote a book called McMafia that's basically about how um, organized crime mm-hmm. occupies a vacuum in, when the state leaves. Like you have a bunch of trained soldiers. If everyone pulls out, some order presents itself. And a lot of people say, hey, like 
these guys, you know, they take 10% of my business, but like there's no violence here anymore. And they like, the, no one steals because they'll kill them. And yeah. like, that's almost something that we've seen in the world before, but it seems so radical that we've gone from Al Qaeda to a, something like that in really only a handful of years. I mean, one thing that's always interested me about your reporting um, is what I know about Al Qaeda is heavily from like uh, Looming Tower, like Lawrence Wright's book. Fantastic. Which is a fantastic book, but it's written in retrospect. Yeah. So it's saying, Looking backwards, it's pretty clear that al-Qaeda's plan was to lure the West into occupations that would prove unpopular and get them out of the the region. It's not a very hard case to make now. What are the challenges of sort of telling this evolving story in real time as you go? (laughs) Well, for me... um for me, it got interesting, and this really only became my beat, I would say, in 2012 and 2013, when I finally was able to, to start having primary sources. A, being able to talk to a handful, you know, of, of these guys. Umar al-Tuma um, was sadly killed. Um, not sadly, but, you know, he was killed. And then I could never, and this wonderful source I had was, was, suddenly, was suddenly gone. I also had these documents, you know, that I started, uh, that I spent months, really like a year, working with a translator and trying trying to understand. And what I suddenly realized is that there's something something much more complex here. You know, it's an actual philosophy. Um, it's a murderous one. It's a very dangerous and awful one in, in, in one, one respect. Uh, but it's not just this cartoonish you know, thing that I had th- that I had been led um, to believe, um, and I'm I try to bring that perspective in the stories that I do. The danger of it is I get criticized for buying their propaganda, you know, or for somehow playing into their hand, you know, and so there's a balance there, you know, yeah. that has to that has to to be weighed with. Wright's thesis that they that they essentially wanted to draw us um, into Afghanistan, I find that so pertinent now because. Look at the debate that's happened after the Jordanian pilot um, was killed. There were pieces written about how, you know, how ISIS is the clear loser in this. You know, they, they killed the Jordanian pilot and they didn't get this woman that they were trying to trade, etc. Right. I'm of the opinion that they actually won. And the reason I think they won is with every one of these horrific videos that they're putting out, they're succeeding in recruiting more people to their crazy cause. And I, I actually believe that they're trying to poke the hornet's nest. I think they want us to send in ground troops. Yeah. I think they want us to be there um, to have, you know, this, this mythical battle that they believe is going to happen at the end of time. Yeah. How else do you explain that they killed James Foley allegedly in retaliation for the airstrikes? The airstrikes get worse and they keep on killing them, you know, and I mean, in, in these open and, and very sort of public spectacles. I mean, I can't prove it, but I think Wright's um, thesis holds true even today. Well, it seems like the thing that has shifted is whereas that was a sort of, hey, this is a kind of secret strategy that like you might figure out later. <laughs> it's now like, yeah. put this in your like newspapers and your TVs, <laughs> like do it now. Right. You know, the the media element is no longer veiled exactly. at all. Like, exactly. So when you're reporting that, when you're reporting on the, de- the death of this Jordanian pilot and a big part of that story is this was intended for the media. Like this was mailed to mm-hmm. me as from what I understand, there was like potentially additional flames photoshopped. Into, like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I, I think that's maybe controversial. Some people think the fire looks fake looks in fake. parts of it. Yeah. Which, yeah. What I'm interested in is when you're covering that Jordanian pilot, yeah. and a big part of it is this was sent to the media, mm-hmm. do you include that in your story, like that this is an act aimed at the media? I haven't included it as that 
specifically before, but I've tried to address the the recruitment element. You mm-hmm. know that this that with every one of these atrocities, you know they're they they seem to be getting more Twitter hits, yep. more more Facebook likes. Uh, you know all of the social media metrics that that one looks for 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 sort of a budding company. You know that is yep. trying to emerge on the market. Fox News put out the entire unedited uh, footage of the immolation of 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 the pilot. Very controversial. I saw them, you know, sort of being pilloried uh, on Twitter. There's an interesting discussion to to have, you know, around that. Um, the the photo editor David First at the on on the international desk of the New York Times, his stance has been that that you show the hostage in you know whatever images we have of them pre capture to kind of maintain their dignity, and whatever images are shown of the execution. Are going to be the most the most dignified ones, you know, not not the knife to the neck, right. not the flames, but the man in the you know in the cage, just um, you know looking down in the moments stoic before his death, stoic exactly. On what Fox News did, the one interesting element of that is, I I have a certain perspective on the Islamic State, and I happen to think that they're very dangerous. I happen to think that they they continue even now to be underestimated. I think we continue to think, oh, well, this is just propaganda. Oh, they don't mean it. Oh, whatever. And the reason I have that perspective is because I'm watching these horrific videos several times a week. Yeah. Right. Um, we don't even report on the local locals being killed. You know, right. the, the the homosexual man, allegedly homosexual man who's thrown off of a building, you know, right. and who doesn't die and then gets beaten up on top of it. The line of Syrian soldiers from Assad's regime who, who get uh, beheaded in a mass execution, the the stonings. Yeah. They're overpublishing. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, but they're but they're so they're so awful. They're yeah. so horrific. And I do think that if other people were were able to see that as much as I am, mm-hmm. that perhaps our foreign policy would be different. Because I think we're not we're not really reckoning yet with the the true depth of this organization. And excuse me for saying, but the, the true evil, you yeah. know, of this of this group. Well, I'm I'm interested in in how you how you can depict that to an audience. I mean, it feels to me like there's maybe three players in these countries. You have the foot, so- the soldiers, many of whom are, are foreign or have, have ended up on circuitous paths to where they are. And then you have the, the leadership, which has generally been involved in this longer. And then you have the ordinary civilians who are trapped. I mean, and when I say these foot soldiers and the leaders, I could be talking about 25 different groups from regime groups to different splinter groups but there are all of these players how do you decide what's what's an important story among that i mean do you think i need a story about civilians for every story i have about the leadership what what's the balance well, there i mean for me part of it is the my beat is circumscribed as and is described as you know islamic extremism terrorism, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. Yeah. I have a very competent uh, set of colleagues in the Middle East, in Lebanon, in yeah. Turkey, etc., that are covering the actual Syrian conflict. So everything dealing with civilians has sort of is their turf. And, ah, okay. and it, wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be right for me to be doing. Are you the only one on the ISIS desk right now? You know, the ISIS desk has become very collaborative because yeah. we're obviously, you know, yeah, we're you obviously... You uh, Yeah, we're... we're um, it, it was sort of a lonely beat for a while um, uh, back when it was still called the JV team. But, I mean, now, you know, when these big stories happen, all of us are pooling string. You know, we have... The, the Jordanian pilot was, was an example where we had three staffers, three, uh, an actual staffer and two freelancers in Jordan who were, you know, following the family, getting getting confirmation from, from government officials. We have our, our actual 
Central Bureau in Beirut in Lebanon um, that is dealing with the Syria situation. We have staffers in Turkey at the Kobani border, and all of us are just trying, you know, through every source that we have to confirm: Is he really dead? Is he going to be killed? Do they has there was a, there was a moment in time where people were tweeting that the Jordanians had agreed to trade uh, Sadija, this this Iraqi would be suicide yeah. bomber. And that they were in the move in, in the process of moving her to the border. Yeah. You know, so you, you can spend hours just chasing <laughs> right. chasing those kind of things from every single angle, you know, that you have, asking every single person that you know. Well, I'm I'm curious, like who who are all these people that you know and who, like who are these sources? You know, on the on the ISIS beat, first of all, it's not a huge amount of people. And they've shifted. I started out, um, there was one guy who did describe himself as an ISIS member. He was Turkish. Um, and I, I was talking to him when I was still living in West Africa, and he was he was almost like a savant. I mean, he would send me uh, Anwar al uh you know, speeches on various points about martyrdom missions. You know, trying to explain to me the theological underpinnings of why a suicide right. bomber is 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 okay in Islam, and and that's to try to convince you of his viewpoint. Yeah, and I, you know what? I mean, to be able to talk to these people in light of what they do. I have to sort of put part of my brain <laughs> on a shelf. Right. The female side of me has to completely shut up because I mean there's no there there's just no talking about, you know, uh, about the role of women in yeah. this particular interpretation of Islam. I just I just can't go there. You know, it it it, it viscerally upsets me. <laughs> um and so uh you know, so there's certain topics that I I just don't even go near. And so instead, we opened the discussion by, well, can you explain? Can, I'm, I'm always asking, can you explain why are you doing X? You know, and then he would, then he feels like an instructor and is sending me links to read and, um, you know, citations from the Quran. One of one of the sources I had told me the specific English language uh, translation of the Quran that he wanted me to buy. I went ahead and bought it. You know, we would sit there and kind of have like joint readings where he'd be like, well, do you see on in this particular scripture how it talks about this particular type of retribution. The occupational hazard of this particular beat is that sources get killed. Yeah, I was going to say, if you got a few, that's like... I mean, I had this one guy, Umar Ultamaha, that, that not just me, but a lot of people, you know, spoke to um, in Mali, and he got killed in, in the middle of 2013. He was extremely useful to me before then, and he even he even helped me try to understand ISIS, you know, type right. things, because these guys are sort of in touch with, with each other. I then had this Turkish guy who I believe has, has been killed because he was... We were talking on the order of... I mean, we would, you know, have... 15 to 20 messages every day, you know, Facebook, etc., you know, with, you know, questions, links, blah, blah, blah. And then from one day to the next, he completely disappeared. And we'd never had sort of like a falling out of any kind. He's, he's just not into you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then for a while, I was sort of flailing there for, for, for a time. And then another person, you know, surfaces. Right. They, um, they often ask to ask me to follow them on Twitter. And then they try to take the conversation to another platform. Um, they used to be using this thing called Kik, yeah. K-I-K. For some reason, this was popular with them for a while. For another period of time, they were using WhatsApp, and they just keep on moving from platform to platform. So, strangely, a lot of the sources I've had recently were, were people that I ended up getting into fights with on Twitter, and then eventually, you know, they're insulting me, kufar, kufar, infidel, infidel. You know, the stupid infidel woman. Yeah. You know, like you have no idea. And then somehow, 
you know, the ice is broken and they'll ask me to follow them, which I already have. And then they follow me. And then suddenly we're, we're messaging uh, each other directly. Because I actually looked at your Twitter this morning and <laughs> yeah. you were like arguing with people about this. I'm Jordan. always, argue, I'm always well, arguing with and them. And I noticed actually yeah. that the topic today, I'm not uh, exposing anything. This is on Twitter. If you go in there, it's people who are like, don't you know ISIS are liars? <laughs> and you go, actually, I, I don't agree with that statement. Here's why. And then people, yeah. you know, there's like, you stupid woman. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And I was like, why is she engaging with these people? I know. I know. I keep on expecting the FBI to call me one day and go, you know, what the heck, you know? But um, uh, yeah, I mean, so. Okay, well, I I know you can't disclose anything about current sources, but let's talk about some of these sources who are um, not with us, so therefore not in any danger at all. (laughs) So like a source like uh, Omar was... Umar Umar Ultramaha. Why did he get in touch and how? So he was on the phone. He was actually, I would actually call him and text him. And he was basically an emir of al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. uh, And he became sort of the self-appointed spokesman that would talk to reporters. He's Uh, been quoted by the New York Times. He's been quoted by Reuters. He's been quoted by AP. So his colleagues knew that he was talking to the New York Times. Yes, exactly. Are some of these people secret about it and not public that they're talking to reporters? I'm sure. Okay. I'm sure. And and the the thing that, that has been somehow sometimes difficult for me to even explain to editors is I can't quote these people because I don't actually know who they are. Right. You know, like I don't know their real identity. One in particular, I know that he is um, that he has a role in what's called the media committee of one of the terrorist groups that we cover, and I know this from other people. Other people have contacted me and who have multiple sources who have told me this. Right. But even then, it's kind of flaky. I mean, because I can't. I don't know what their real name is. Right. All I know is. These are people that have access to genuine al-Qaeda or ISIS statements hours before they go public. That, to me, is a test. You know, you, you have access to a password-protected website that very few people have access to, or you have access to kind of raw intel that, um, uh, for example, one particular source messaged me at the very end of last year. I think it was December just a few days before the New Year, and she said, this pilot has been captured, and my sources in Raqqa are saying that he's been tortured and interrogated. And in the interrogation, they got some very interesting stuff out of him, including operations and how, you know, how the coalition is carrying out airstrikes. And I'll have to go back and look at the date, but it was just days after that, that that they came out in, the, I believe it was in their English language magazine with this glossy, you know, multi-page spread on the interrogation that they had done with this guy. You know, so you, you, you have that interaction enough times and you start to, you, the first time you don't believe it, you know, maybe it's just a coincidence. But after a certain time, you realize, okay, this person who I don't know who they are does somehow have a real channel to whoever is putting out the real propaganda. And they're very useful because they're telling me what's coming. And so part of this is sort of a coordinated media strategy. Like yeah. there's the guys who are like putting out the DVD. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a guy who's kind of like bootlegging the DVD <laughs> and putting it up like a day early yeah. and sending it to you. Yeah. But the intention was still put that DVD out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming that ISIS must also have secrets, which is to of say course. things that they do not want of people course. to know about. Yeah. Are your sources primarily pro-ISIS people? I mean, are there dissidents who are leaking ISIS material they shouldn't also? I have I have one person who appears to be a dissident. They just sent me a message saying that they're retiring, <laughs> which I'm very upset about. This person has sort of very much imbibed the ideology on many points, but was very turned off by the Yazidi uh, sex slave issue. Right. That was a line that, that 
that this person felt should not have been crossed. And at first, they were they were just actively uh, contacting me, and they wanted me to write about the Yazidis. Sort of a month before a month before that that height of stories started hitting the internet with you know various various Yazidi women giving interviews about right. about their captivity and stuff. And unfortunately, it was sort of off of my beat. You know, like I'm not. I'm dealing with terrorism, and I was very involved with the hostage uh, reporting, so it was just not for me, you know, right. to do that. Um, the source then became very frustrated because, you know, they're like telling me all of these things about like what's happening with the Yazidis and um, and stuff. And then I believe went went to other reporters, you know, and um, and sort of disappeared for a while and then resurfaced. So it's a sort of unpredictable kind of stream of of information, and you have to strike a balance between being nice enough to these people that they would want to talk to you. You know, you can't be an asshole to them and be like, oh, you're a terrorist, right, you know, right, or whatever, right. and, and sound very, you know, kind of accusatorial. At the same time, I don't shy away from telling them if they ask me what my opinion is, you know, of what they're doing. Um, I had a, a conversation with one one particular person in, in Al-Qaeda where I said to him, you know, look, man, like, I'm practically a vegetarian. I think that killing an animal, you know, is, yeah, right. is to me problematic. <laughs> and certainly killing civilians. I do not agree with what you're doing, okay? But at the same time, I'm, I'm a journalist and I want to do my job well and I think that it's very important for us to understand your point of view as well as we can, right? I think because of the fact that these groups, because by nature they're secret, you know, and by nature in general reporters cannot contact them to have their reply, which is the, the cardinal rule of how we report on almost every other thing. You know, like you, you cover a murder, you call the murderer's lawyer, you know, to get their say about, the, you know, the conviction, the sentencing, whatever. You don't, you don't ever do a story in, in almost every other realm that we cover where you only say, state one side. Right. And because of that, I think there's a lot of incorrect reporting. It's the one group you can say just about anything about because those people will never call you out. Right. They'll never call your editors. They don't know how. <laughs> right. Um, there was there was uh, an interesting example last year where um, before the Yazidi sex slave thing, um, a member of the UN, I believe it was in Iraq. Um, I, I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but I believe it was a UN official in Iraq announced that ISIS had begun a, begun a campaign in various provinces in Iraq to do to do female genital cutting. And several media houses, you know, ran with it. It was, an, it was a UN official who was saying it, right? So I, I have some sympathy, you know, for them. It was completely wrong. Completely wrong. They don't, in fact, ISIS does not believe in FGM, right? And they came, it's been something that they have used over and over again. FGM as an is kind of like a regional practice more than a re- religious practice. Completely. Yeah. And there's been, in fact, in, um, there's been stories done like in East Africa about imams being, um, you know, being essentially... Uh, brought in by the UN and other agencies to try to explain that this is not a religious religious edict. It's it's a completely cultural uh, practice in Egypt and in West Africa, etc. Somalia. Et Somalia. Yeah, right. So basically the idea was, I mean, people just ran with it because, you know, of course, ISIS, this, this murderous death cult, awful people, they also surely have done this awful thing too. <laughs> right. You know, and they hate women on top of it, you know. But it was completely false. That's the kind of mistakes that get made. I believe quite frequently because we we can't really call them, you know, to be right. like, okay, spokesman of ISIS, can you please tell me, is this true, is this not true? Um, and I've actually been surprised with how open they are with the media. <laughs> I'm surprised yeah. that there aren't isn't like a live interview yeah. call where like, you know, the head of ISIS does like a check-in. I mean, it's it's that constant enough communication yeah. that 
it wouldn't seem out of bounds for, for, them to for do people that. to be on air via satellite That's in, true. in the near future. That's true. They, they were doing it in Mali. In Mali, you could, you literally could call Umar al-Hamaha or this other guy called Sanda Ulbumana to, you know, to get their spiel on. <laughs> did you destroy the, you know, the ancient, you know, the ancient mausoleums of Timbuktu? Of course we did. Of course. You know, you know here's the, you know, here's the Sharia ruling for why, for why we did it. You know, you, you could do that there. Um, perhaps because ISIS is more, more on the radar of a, of a group that people are trying to hunt down. Right. So, wh- so what do these sources think of you? I mean, you're a woman who is dealing with men <laughs> who are soldiers, and um, you know your name's on the front of the front of the newspaper. W- what do they make of a female reporter? <laughs> I mean, the ones that the ones that I get on the best with are surprisingly kind to me and complimentary. They call me out when I've made mistakes. For example, uh, in, in Mali, after the, the French uh, invasion, this was just at the start where ISIS was kind of just like a you know an embryo and the whole Twitter thing hadn't really uh, taken off. But these various terrorist groups, what they were doing is they were creating Twitter accounts. And it was before Twitter was shutting them all down. So there was one, you know, where and you, you go there and you'd see like 10,000 followers, all of them journalists. Right. <laughs> um, and so what, what I did is I reached out to one of one of these groups. I said, can you please follow me, whatever. They didn't follow me, but I suddenly got um, a message. Uh, this other guy that had, you know, this very jihadist kind of picture. It was a, a dude on a horse, completely in black, <laughs> with a sword that was dripping blood. <laughs> it's know, impor- like, it's okay. important to use the right <laughs> iconography. <laughs> so he suddenly appears and then broke he clearly put this in Google Translate. In broken English, he says to me, please follow. You know, please follow me, something like that. So I followed him, and he then introduces himself as the webmaster of the Twitter account for Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. And we start chatting. And um, he was interviewed. Uh, I can't remember what... Um, he, he did this with a few reporters. Um, and he then got disillusioned because... I can't remember if it was the Wall Street Journal. It was some reporter um, essentially like interviewed him in these direct messages on Twitter and then and then published a little story that he felt was unfair because he didn't realize he didn't think he was being interviewed. You know, he thought he was just sharing right. <laughs> sharing tweets, you know, with, yeah. with a with a reporter. And um, anyway, and so he, you know, he contacted me and, you know, was very upset about this. And I was like, listen, like I mean, these people have editors, you know, you can complain if you want, you know, like, I mean, I'm not sure that they'll take you seriously. But, you know, like, if, if this was an off the record interview, you know, this is kind of a right that you have, you know, with 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 a journalist, he said, Okay, I didn't know that, whatever. Um, a little bit later, uh, like a few months later, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb put out a statement. And I did a story on it. And I made a mistake. I somehow misread and made an assumption that was that was incorrect. And he contacted me and he was a little bit angry and he said, um, Rukmini, you know, you, you made a mistake on this. And this was what sealed our relationship um, or our, you know, journalist source kind of relationship. I looked at the statement. I looked at what I wrote. I realized I'd made a mistake and I immediately did a correction. And then I sent him the correction. And I sent him the new material and I said, look, here it is. You know, this is, this is the, the new thing. And that was sort of <laughs> that was sort of a watershed moment you know for for him because i think he then realized okay i'm not i'm not just here to you know put out whatever heck whatever the heck i want to put out you know about about this about this group if i've made a mistake i've made a mistake you know like i mean we all make mistakes right and i and i'm perfectly happy to own it uh, and um, he he then started you know being very nice to me and he would say rukmini you're different than the other journalists right. <laughs> and um, he was also very um, 
when he would be unhappy with some of my coverage, he would scold me in a way that it almost felt like a parent, you know, like, like I'm disappointed in you kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And among the things that really upset him, and I've actually tried to change this because I'm not sure that the word adds, adds that much. It, it upset him very much that we called him, that we called him terrorists. So I've tried I've tried as much as I can, you know, to kind of take that word out when I can. Let's call them militants, extremists. You know, the the terrorist word is very loaded and I will talk about terrorism and I will talk about terror acts, but I'm trying to to lessen the use of the noun. Right. <laughs> I think that's a fair practice. You know, right. I think, you know, even like in the Israel, you know, context, numerous news organizations have stopped using the word terrorist to refer to Palestinian militants and extremists, right? Anyway, so so it's these kind of things where I'm try- I'm trying very hard to show them that I intend to treat them fairly to the extent that I can. You know, I mean, we will we will never shy away from writing what is the truth, which is that these are acts of atrocity, that these are gross violations of human rights. So you've been based out of West Africa for quite a while. I want to talk to talk about how you ended up there, but mm. do you feel uncomfortable that ISIS knows who you are and what your name is and, and what you look like? I mean, does that restrict your travel at all, or are you, do you feel like you're on ne- neutral terms with them? I'm not totally sure that ISIS knows who I am. Really? I, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You I, don't I, think they I, go yeah. on, like, NewYorkTimes.com and go, like, <laughs> It's always her who's writing about us. So like. um, I think I think there's a there's a bunch of us writing about them. Okay. And I mean, I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe I'm deluding myself and thinking that they're not necessarily keeping as close of tabs on us. Um, I would have thought that might be true. Like when you were working for the AP, and like it's getting syndicated, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, hard yeah. to tell who commissioned it. But right. Far be it for me to know um, who reads nytimes.com or not. <laughs> I guess you could look at some IP addresses right. and see if it's being checked out. But. Right. Um, even me as a, a casual reader, right. I notice that all of the stories of this type mm-hmm. are written by you. You're Interesting. the voice of the New York Times on the topic of ISIS. I see, I see. Um, which I would just assume that someone who was a group that was so media aware right. would be like, she's right at the top of our Rolodex <laughs> here. Like, we, we, we get her first, yeah. you know? The, the reality, Erin, is that I feel that we can't even go anywhere near ISIS territory now, certainly not in Syria. The only parts of Syria where New York Times staffers have been, you know, in the past year have been in government controlled areas. Mm-hmm. I, I think right now that it would be suicidal, not just for me, but for anybody um, to go into an ISIS controlled area, regardless of the of the of the sort of protection that you might that you might have. And as the stories of these hostages, you know, come out, more and more we keep on seeing people that trusted another rebel group or, or a fixer or whatever, but also, you know, these rebel groups that are supposed to be somewhat secular and were, were given assurances, etc. And I believe this is what happened with one of the Japanese, you know, hostages. And then either, you know, we don't really know how they're taken, but either they're ambushed or they're sold or you know or something else some something in between you know happens and they end up you know in ISIS hands there's been essentially two reporters that have gone and been able to operate inside of ISIS territory openly and with their permission there was one from Vice Um, I believe he's a Muslim man uh, and I believe he's a Sunni Right. So, I mean, I can't even compare myself. You know? Right. Uh, I think and I believe he actually shot that video, not even as a representative of Vice and then sold it to Vice. I so see. he was not even 
on contract. He was not on it. He was uh, freelancing when he shot shot that video. Right, right. They've held that up, that Vice uh, footage, they've held that up over and over again as an example of, you know, we don't actually hate reporters. You know, we just hate the ones that are that are agents of the of the coalition, you know, and of the evil crusader government. Right. So there's been that. And then more recently, there was this German author. I, I, I. Excuse me for saying this, but I don't want to call him a journalist because in our definition of journalism, he's he's more of an activist, right? Ah. But, you know, so, you know, kudos to him. He managed to, over months and months, working probably in a similar way to, you know, to I am through social media, contacted various channels. They gave him a letter, which was then posted on, on actually on the Internet, uh, assuring his protection. And they allowed him in, I think, for, for a couple of weeks. And he came out and did sort of these... Amazingly, you know, um, sh- you know, scintillating sort of uh, takes on what it was like to be inside ISIS-controlled uh, areas. He described. I mean, one thing that stayed with me is he described how at this one recruitment building where he that he visited, how these like dozens of recruits were showing up practically every day with just this shine in their eyes. You know, this excitement about about being able to be part of the Islamic State. So they've now held up this guy, you know, as yet another example of, oh, we, we don't really hate journalists, you right. know. Right. Well, it's kind of like the Chris Christie um, investigation into Bridgegate. Like it's, you know, it's like, <laughs> right. it's like we found like the perfect person to run yeah. this. Uh, yeah. I'm, but I'm interested, are you relying on people who are on the ground, like in the territory surrounding ISIS territory in your reporting? I have one source who claims that he is inside. Yeah. I don't actually know who he is. Right. Because I don't plan to quote him at any point. You know, I'm I'm using him as a resource to understand. I have refrained from asking him who he is because I know that that will just make him uncomfortable, you know, and will possibly make him shut down, you know, yeah. on me. Whether he's really there or not, you know, who knows what what is useful to me is he sends me these official messages an hour or more before they usually start being disseminated on a, on a large scale. But as far as my own my own security, I mean, there's been some recent reporting. Um, the U.S. Embassy and others have made this clear that ISIS now, because they're very low on hostages or internationally prominent uh, hostages, that they're actually trying to look in neighboring countries. Among them is southern Turkey. And I was in southern Turkey with, with colleagues um, in November and December. This is near the border to Syria? Yes. Is... There's the town of Antakya, there's the town of Urfa, and the town of Gaziantep, all of which are within a short driving distance um, of the border, and all of which are, you know, a, kind of a maze of, um, of neighborhoods that have very large uh, Syrian incoming uh, right. migrants. And are also serving as a transfer port for people who are trying to join exactly. to a, whole, a exactly. whole motley crew of exactly. uh, interests in them. Yeah, exactly. And there's an entire industry of fixers that 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 are there and that peddle ISIS defectors and also sometimes real members of ISIS to members of the media. I've done a couple of these interviews. They're hard to do because it's so hard to vet any of this information. You know, I mean, you're you know, you speak to a guy who claims that he's an interrogator for ISIS. How do I vet his information? How do I – is there a second source who can tell me that what he's telling me is correct? I don't know. Um, but given that those people – let's imagine that they're real, that they're opening – that they're they're meeting me in a mall, you know? Imagine that they're able to do that as ISIS members. It means that they have full access, you know, to this, to this part of Turkey. And there's now increasing warnings that they're looking for Western journalists uh, to kidnap. I have a very good friend, a very experienced reporter who has years and years of experience in the Middle East and who speaks fluent Arabic. And she described being told by a, by a very close source of hers that they were going around with her picture 
among ISIS members and that they were actively looking for her. She's a person that has a very large social media following. So, you know, if she was kidnapped, it would be it would be a big deal. Anyway, so there's there's stories of that kind that are coming out and that right. are that are very worrisome. You yeah. know, and that, you know, now there's reports that they're working with um, with Turkish smugglers who allegedly are looking for for journalists or civilians, you know, to to capture and who will then, I guess, sell them, you know, to ISIS. This episode is going to be terrible for the Turkish tourism industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And anyway, so I've, it was my first time to this region. Um, you know, I've, I've never actually been to Syria because I, I came on to this beat uh Essentially, in 2014, uh, in 2013, I was still covering Mali. Yeah. And I came in onto it at a, at a point in time when there were almost two dozen Western hostages that were already being held. And it was very clear that this, I mean, unless you have a death wish, you don't you don't go into this area. Yeah. Well, it seems like almost like this year that you've spent reporting, I don't know when, when if it's maybe a little bit more than a year now or... Uh, it's less than a year. Less than a year. Yeah. I know. A lot, a, lot, a lot has happened. I mean, um, this has gone from sort of a side note story to probably like one of the biggest stories of the year. And it's all been this trajectory of this diminishing number of hostages, yes. which now sits at zero. After, no, you've, no, they've got they've got John Cantley, the John, British okay. guy. Okay. And they have one more woman who's from who's from another country. We've been asked not to identify the country. Okay. But it's not it's not the kind of country that would get the kind of publicity that the other hostages have gotten. So they have those two. It seems that Cantley I, I pray for his sake that um, he seems to have moved into this safer territory um, where they're using him for propaganda and perhaps they've decided that that's a more useful role for him. I don't think they're actively threatening his life the way they were before, so I wonder whether he's he's going to be spared. Yeah. So that leaves him with this woman. And with the woman, I think there's still this debate within ISIS this is what my sources tell me, that there's there's very much a question about whether, even for ISIS, whether that would be going too far. First of all, do you have a man execute a woman? Right. We heard reports. I mean, we were never able to, like, actually publish this because it was, you know, single source or from unreliable people, that they were training Somali girls uh, who were new recruits, uh, wives of fighters, to behead women. Who, who the heck knows? But, you know, that it was as if they were trying to answer this problem right. of how do you execute a m- woman? Because the, the visuals of a man standing over an unarmed woman and yeah. doing what they've done to these other hostages is just so awful, you know, that, it, that, that perhaps even for them, it's too much. So if you put these two hostages sort of out of play, and I'm not aware of any others that are with ISIS, then... What they need to do is go replenish the pot. And where can they go? Southern Turkey. There's reports of Jordan. Uh, CNN had a story recently where they were, they were quoting unnamed sources saying that they were they had ISIS linked, um, you know, agents who were looking in in possibly in Jordan. So now, now we're in this very treacherous landscape, where in part through our own reporting <laughs> on these incidences, the biggest prize is a journalist. Because as soon as you put that person's video up, everybody will write about it. I mean, just think of the, the coverage that James Foley's death got. Somebody quoted a poll to me recently where they, they, were, they were polling people, and other than 9-11, there was no event in recent you know, world history that had such penetration. I think it was 9 out of 10 Americans responded that they had either seen the visuals or were aware of James Foley's um, execution. That's a huge win, you know, for them. That's what they want. And so I think in their minds they've realized it's not just civilians, it's journalists that are that are 
you know, the creme de la creme as far as as far as targets. And that's that's a really that's a really scary thing for our profession. Well, it's a it's a scary thought to be sort of restarting the cycle over again, you know, assuming yeah. that that is sort of the point that they've hit and you wonder how can it go differently this time, assuming that people are kidnapped and yeah. that there is sort of another countdown and yeah. another um, set of scenarios in that way? Right. You know, the media is not a government. Like the U.S. government can say, we're not paying ransoms. Yes, yeah, exactly. The media can't say, we're not, we're not reporting yeah. on kidnapped journalists. Exactly. exactly. If enough journalists were kidnapped, I, I, I assume that there would be discussions of that kind, um, even if they weren't a blanket ban, um, in the same way that certain people chose not to report on the Snowden stuff, like categorically, we're coming out in front of it and saying, we're not going to report on these leaked documents. I mean, have there ever been discussions of that kind? Well, I mean, I think the first discussion that has occurred is there's basically this understanding in most newsrooms that um, when any civilian, it's not just journalists, but when any civilian is now taken, um, that the, the blackout is respected. And you know, this is this is somewhat controversial because um, I've I've spoken to, for instance, uh, former Ambassador Peter Galbraith, who was uh, who was in Afghanistan at the time when my former New York Times colleague uh, David Rode was taken, and he's he was very critical of the way the Times um, handled it because he felt that we gave. Uh, obviously, David Rode was a New York Times employee, right? Um, so so the paper was in this difficult situation like this, surely they're not going to report on their own a staffer who's right. been taken if, if that person's wife is, is requesting a blackout. In interviews, Galbraith felt that there was a double standard, you know, that, that the media was treating reporters and reporter captives differently than we had treated kidnapped diplomats, etc. I was not, you know, I was not covering this beat back then, so I don't, I don't right. actually know if there was a double standard. But it seems now, not just reporters, but civilians of any kind, it's sort of in the family's hands. You know, if the family decides to go public, we do. Or secondly, if ISIS, you know, if the ter- once the terrorist group breaks the sort of embargo, then we report on it. But we don't report before. And this remains, to me, a very problematic and controversial decision. Because one can argue that the blackout helps the U.S. government. Right. I mean, nobody knew of James Foley. I mean, actually, some people did know of James Foley because his his parents had done a little bit of media before before the major the major event of his killing, but no nobody knew the extent of his plight. You know, nobody knew that he'd been waterboarded, that he'd been tortured. You know, the details of this sordid, awful captivity, and one wonders if. Had had those things been known very early on, and certainly other reporters knew it because some of his his European cellmates were being released, and right. they were coming out with these incredibly graphic descriptions of what was going on inside. What seems to have happened, and I've reported at length about this, is that the U.S. government sort of treated this as kind of a low-level priority up until Foley's execution. They almost treated it like a domestic kidnapping. And they continue to say that they did everything in their power uh, to get him out. Yes, there was. Except ransoming him. <laughs> except, <laughs> except ransoming him. Um, but th- there was indeed an unsuccessful uh, raid in July, just uh, two months, sorry, a month and a half or so before before his death. But at that point, Foley had been held for almost two years. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you're allowing these people to kind of rot in a jail um, for a really long time, which is a very different way than, than I think European governments uh, handle, handle these kind of crises. And one can argue that the blackout essentially helps 
officials who are trying to cover cover their rear ends, you know, who want to maintain this fiction that everything was done to save this human being. And Rode later was is is critical of the U.S. government's decision not to offer ransoms, and you can see that blacking things out prevents a true public discussion of, of ransom course. until it's like, well, we're too late now. We can't have that discussion now. Like yeah. the discussions of ransoming prisoners is all in retrospect at a point when it's purely theoretical, basically. Um, do you have people within the government also telling you don't publish things? Always. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. Yeah. I mean, and, do you like, yeah. keep a second cell phone yeah. in your pocket to hear from the government? Like, um, yeah. When do they call, like, when when do you hear from them? You know, they don't, they don't even call me. They go straight over my head to, okay. they know exactly who to go to. Can't even get the respect to. of a phone call. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, they're, even yesterday, ISIS comes out and announces that Kayla's dead, and they include in their little their first initial kind of release all of these identifying details, her first name, her last name, which I knew, her middle name, which I did not know, her former telephone number in Turkey, her address in Prescott, Arizona. I knew she was, she was from Arizona. I did not actually know what town she was from. And they did that, I think, because they're not showing a body. And so they're trying to kind of prov- provide all of the details to show, well, we really had her. So in the first couple takes of the story that we put up on the web, we did not name her. Um, even though the Washington Post and, and others did. And the, the discussion I had with, you know, with my editors at the time was, why do we want to get out in front of this? She's named, and this is going to come out pretty soon, next couple hours. Why don't we just wait for the family, you know, to, to do whatever they're going to do? And sure enough, by, I believe it was by afternoon, the family put out a statement where they themselves, you know, confirmed her captivity. And at that point, you know, we, we named her. But it's this awful balance between our duty as reporters, you know, our, our, our duty, you know, in maintaining transparency about what's happening and the very real fear that mentioning, you know, these people that, you know, displaying the conditions of their detention might bring harm to them. And that was part one of my interview with Rukmini Kalimaki. Uh, we will have the second part of that interview up as soon as we can. Uh, this one was edited by Jenna Weiss Berman. Uh, our intern is Rachel Mabe. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Our sponsors were Tiny Letter and Lynda.com, where if you go and go to Lynda.com slash longform, you can get a 10-day free trial to everything at Lynda.com. Uh, thank you very much to Rukmini Kalimaki for talking to me long enough to justify two episodes. Uh, Charge your phones, get your earbuds ready. We'll have part two out very soon. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs>